Hi, and welcome to Hope for the Family, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. In this series, recovered family members share how they've been able to find peace and freedom as the loved ones of alcoholics and addicts through interviews and sharing their stories. For more information about our family support group, including weekly meetings, please visit magdalenhouse.org forward slash family. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. All right. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Stephanie Crawford, and I am the program manager for the Next Step program here at the Magdalene House, as well as the host of this amazing podcast. Uh, It is one of my favorite things about my job is getting to meet new people and interview people and uh, get to know them and their story. And it's always such a bright spot of my week. And so today we are um, recording Hope for the Family. And it's a very, I think, special episode because this particular guest has experience both on the alcoholic side and the family side. So we might get to hear a little bit of of both. I have heard about this woman and I have heard her name in my circles uh, for a while now, and it's all been such great things. And so, of course, I had to Facebook message Kylie and ask for his mom's phone number. Uh, So today we have Sonia on. And um, if you don't mind just introducing yourself and giving us a little bit of background and just what led you to be in a place where you would have to seek out recovery as a family member. Okay. Um, as the alcoholic, my sobriety dates January 6th of 1991. And I came into Al-Anon in January of 1987. And you will not miss the point that 87 is four years before 91. I was sicker than most. I came in what we call the back door. At some point, I came to, we, we come to and have that moment of awakening that tells us something's wrong. And I came to beating up on my ex-husband and uh, telling him, if you had this kid, if you had this dog, if you had this job, you'd drink too. And it occurred to me that I had become my mother with my drinking. And I had no idea. I was one that never intended to drink or smoke or anything. That was when I got sober. So what led to that was my recovery in Al-Anon because I walked into Al-Anon in 1987 and I was scared to death, 18 years old, had no idea about anything except that I felt different, that something had to be wrong with me, that I was defective, that I was broken and no one, no one could help me. And Al-Anon was suggested by the uh, boyfriend at the time by his mom. That tells you how crazy I was. His mother didn't think he needed AA, but I needed Al-Anon. Oh, gosh. So when I walked into Al-Anon, I was broken. I was afraid. I was not, uh, I wasn't angry. I wasn't mean. Uh, When I came into AA four years later, I was angry. I was mean. I was ego, an egomaniac. And so there was quite a transition between those times. But in Al-Anon coming in, I was lower than dirt. I would let people walk on me, hurt me, harm me. I didn't matter. So that's that's kind of how I got to both places. Now, you said that the mom thought that you needed Al-Anon, but he didn't need AA. 
Was he a heavy drinker? Was he an alcoholic? Oh, wow. I'm not supposed to pronounce anyone alcoholic. Right. Never supposed to do that. But (laughs) but I can tell you, you know, the big book talks about if if when you find you really want to, you can't stop drinking and you can't control what happens after you start. That might be alcoholic. Yeah. He couldn't control what happened after he started drinking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he did, in my opinion, need AA. Mm -hmm. But I did, too, and didn't know any better. Right. I was the crazy one. You know, you expect the alcoholic one to act crazy, but I was the crazy one. He was a functional alcoholic. Yeah. So. I was never one of those. Uh, my hat's off to people who are. <laughs> so it's so weird. I thought that you, what drove you into Al-Anon would have been your husband now or your son. So it's a nice surprise to hear that that is not the case. Um, you said that you had turned into your mother. Did you grow up in an alcoholic home? Yeah, my my uh, young years were difficult. We were poor. Daddy worked very hard, but we were very poor. Um, part of why we were poor is that the telephone bill and the prescription bill was very high for my mom. She would um, take her prescriptions, drink, get on the phone and stay on the phone all day, long distance. Everything at that time, long time ago was long distance. Growing up was crazy because we had alcoholism all in our family, all in our family. And mom had been severely affected. You know, she had reasons in her past and things in her past that hurt her and damaged her. And I didn't know that until, until probably right before she died. But that pushed me into Al-Anon. It pushed um, the illness in me, caused me to attract crazy people, whether they were addicts, whether they were alcoholics, and whether they were male or female. My friends that I attracted at that time were crazy. And so, of course, any boyfriend was going to be just as crazy. And if they had something broken, I was going to be the one to fix it. And, you know, if if an Al-Anon has an ego, that's going to be it is that I think I can fix it. Right. So it was very hard growing up in the environment I grew up in, but it taught me so much. And when it came time to recognize my alcoholism, I knew what it looked like. Mm -hmm. I could look back and I knew what it looked like. And so I'm really grateful for that part. Yeah. So were you drinking when you went into Al-Anon at 18? Absolutely. Were you drinking problematically? Drinking and using. Mm. Yes, yes. From the time I was 13, I was drinking and using. Because like I said, something was broken. Right. And, you know, even as a kid, I went to a teacher and I'll never forget this. And he won't either because I've, I've since spoken to him since I got sober and in recovery. I asked him, I said, something's wrong in my house. Something's wrong at my house. And I don't know what it is. And I said, I don't, I'm not Okay. And my family isn't okay. And we're not like everyone else in our in my class. And he had no answers. He had no idea what I was talking about. He had no answers at all. And that was just so heartbreaking because they weren't trained, you know, in that time, they didn't, they didn't know what to, to ask. They didn't know how to recognize it. So when it came time for me to go to Almond and to try and get better, I knew something was definitely broken. And, you know, they would tell me to go to open AA meetings 
And they would say, we want you to go to these open AA meetings and you need to listen. And this was Eleanor. And I would dress up, go to the open AA meetings, listen, leave, and go get drunk. I never saw that as a problem. And a lot of alcoholics that come in through Al-Anon do the same thing. They so, drink between their Al-Anon meetings. So I guess it's a thing. It's a, a common thing where alcoholics come in through the back door. It happens more than... Happens more than you'd think. If they have good sponsorship and the sponsor can help them identify it. And if they're willing to be honest. What I've found, and I found this through the Lake Whitney group, is where we went to meetings. That was our home group until we moved to Fort Worth. And that group is family recovery. It is Al-Anon and AA. And we did many, many things together. It was not separate. And what we found in a women's meeting of alcoholics and Al-Anons is how very similar the illnesses are. Mm -hmm. The Al-Anons would recognize their traits and their tendencies that were just like an alcoholic because they're, I am addicted to other people and their behavior as an Al-Anon, and as an alcoholic, I'm addicted to the substance. Mm, man. The behavior is what gets me in Al-Anon. If they say I'm having a bad day, suddenly I'm having a bad day too. If they come in and they're angry, suddenly I am too. And I explained it to one of the ladies I sponsored the other day. I said, my mouth was attached to the doorknob. He opened the doorknob, whoever he was, he opened the door turned that doorknob and I started talking, just talk, 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 talk. And I couldn't stop. It was, where have you been? And what have you been doing? And who have you been doing that with? And why are you doing that? And you know, the drill, the, you know, total fear, fear. What have you done that I can't control or fix? Mm. Mm -hmm. and, and yes, that it reared its ugly head when our son got into his addiction. It really did. Because instead of doing what Al-Anon suggests, which I had a long time, 27 years, I think, in Al-Anon before his addiction, before he got sober, I guess, um, had a long time. And still, when that reared its ugly head, my Al-Anon, gosh, I became really hard, hard. You know, if you're disrespectful to me, get out. If you... Get drunk somewhere, too bad. If you need money, tough, right? Some people call that tough love. I call it being hard. It's hard. Instead of saying, if you need food, I can help you with that. I'll bring you some food. Or if you can get it right over here, I'll make sure you have something to eat. There's a difference between saying tough, do it yourself, and saying, I love you, and here's how I can help, but not enable. Mm. you know mm -hmm. enabling is the thing that I would not do under any circumstance and I don't think that I did toward the end finally the love kicked back in and I was able to for just a, a small amount of time separate the addiction that my child had from the love that I had for him mm. and I could see the sickness rather than a child that was being ugly yeah. Since that time, it's been an absolute, it's been a miracle. I, I have a child I never expected. I never expected to have such a gift of a son. And we have another son who doesn't seem to need 
recovery or hasn't reached out for it. Let's put it that way. And I say recovery. I wanted to mention that. I know that lots of alcoholics identify as recovered, past tense. And that, I believe, can be done because you can absolutely separate yourself from the alcohol. That's past tense, recovered, haven't had a drink in 30 years. In Al-Anon, however, every time I react in a negative way or in a way that's not helpful, every time I am... um, Every time I choose to behave a certain way, try to fix your life, for instance, right? I give an opinion without being asked. Every time I do that, that's a Al-Anon slip, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So that's not something that, that I can cut off and say past tense. So I always say recovering because I think that's a lifetime process of learning to have relationships. Mm-hmm. I, I like that. I can see that for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, of all the interviews that I've done with family members, we have not had a mom on yet um, or a parent at all. And so I'm really just grateful for this part um, because I can't, um, something about me, I have two children and my two-year-old son, his dad was in the program. We met in the program and he died last year. Um, and so, and because of, of the disease, he had been sober for four and a half years. Um, and then he relapsed and couldn't get and stay sober after that. And so that was hard. That was really hard. So I miss him. I still think about him all the time, but I can't imagine anything harder than being powerless over your child and your child's addiction. I mean, I just feel like that and I'm already like you know my son's two and I'm like what if he becomes an addict and he's going to be just like me and his dad and yada 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 and my daughter has it on both sides of her family and like I can't do anything to control it and he's two years old and I'm already out there you know and I'm like if he does I'm kicking him out of the house he's going to be homeless it's going to be because I want to get him down to the consequences as soon as possible And he's too, and I've already have this plan. So do you mind just talking about like, given your experience with alcoholism and addiction and how awful it is from your perspective and your experience, did you carry some of that into being a mother of an addict? Do you understand what I'm saying? Sure, sure. Um, our oldest child, my oldest child got the, the worst part. Um, when I got sober, I was a very, very angry mom, very angry mom. Um, I was a single mom shortly after I got sober because my first husband was uh, less than kind, we'll say. So I was a really angry woman. And our oldest child got the end of that. I have regrets and I don't have many regrets. You know, we will not regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. One of our promises And I don't have a lot of regrets that I regret terribly. And I've had to make amends to him. And he's like, mom, would you just leave it alone, please? We're good. You know, he keeps, I'm forgiven, but I still some days, the weight of that behavior that I did, no one else did it. I did it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The weight of that behavior weighs heavy some days. Um, I'm going to say that our youngest that, you know, um, he probably got more of my 
lack of recovery in Al-Anon. He got more of my Al-Anon tough than he ever got the alcoholic part. Um, you know, he was raised in a home with two alcoholics. He never, ever, ever saw anyone drink in his home. He went to meetings from the time he was in my belly. He went to meetings. In fact, when he was um, 12 or 13, maybe, he came into our AA meeting and he sat down and he said, I think I'd like a chip. And the whole group, this was our small, small, small AA group. They all said, what? And he said, well, I haven't had a drink in all these years. I want a chip. And we just, wow. And, you know, from the time he was a little guy, I knew he was alcoholic. Yeah. I knew it. All the ism was present, every bit of it. And my biggest fear still, still today is that one of my children I'll lose to the disease. That is still probably my greatest fear. And I don't have a lot of fears, but that's one of them. So, you know, he was affected the youngest, probably by my Allen on tough, just like you're talking about. You know, we had a, um, he was, I don't know, 10 or 12. We got in an argument in the car, in the parking lot at Target in Granbury. And I said, get out. He said, what? I said, get out of the car. You're not, I'm, I'm not going to be talked to you like that. Get out. And I put him out of the car. Now we didn't live in Granbury. We lived 45 minutes away, but I wanted him to understand you don't talk to people like that. Well, that did that point didn't get across. You know, um, he had one parent that enabled, <laughs> and it wasn't this one. <laughs> you know, I was not the enabler. I was the harsh one. I was the one that, and I mean hard. And I didn't know that. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know any other way to do it. Let's put it that way. Even though I've been in Al-Anon forever, even though. I had listened, gone to meetings, done my steps, worked with a sponsor. I've had the same sponsor for 28 years. I mean, I've done what I'm supposed to, but I will tell you that nothing prepared me for having an addicted child, nothing. But he, I think he suffered from me being so hard. I did not understand how to separate the child that I loved from the disease that consumed him. I didn't, and I was really ignorant. If you'd believe that from someone who's both an addict and an alcoholic and an Al-Anon, I did not see when he started using. I didn't smell it on him. I didn't smell the booze on him. I didn't smell any other substance on him. I was completely no idea. And what exposed it was I found out I had the three guys, right? I've got two sons and a husband. I found out all three of them lied to me about something. And that caused a pretty major freak out on my end because you just died lying to me was not, not okay, especially if I found out. So we had the major freak out and that's when it was uh, brought up about the youngest addiction. And wow. Uh, <laughs> from that point on, it was very hard because I knew I didn't want to enable. I knew that I was scared out of my mind that he would die mm -hmm. because so many do. And I knew that I needed to be as much of a support as I knew how to be. I failed miserably, but I gave it all ahead. Mm -hmm. You know, thank goodness we, we can only 
You know, we can only walk with the light we have to see by. That's, I didn't have any more light. Um, at the end of his using, right before he got sober, uh, and I'm so grateful for this one time I can remember and use as an example. I don't have a lot of examples of me practicing the Al-Anon program perfectly, but this night I did. <clears throat> I always told him, if you're ever drunk somewhere and you need a ride home, don't get in the car with anyone who's been drinking. I'll come get you. No questions asked. And I meant that. No questions asked. You're not going to get chewed out. You're not going to get fussed at. Nothing. I will come get you. I don't care where you are. So he called and he was in a town about 30 minutes away, 20 minutes away. And I drove up and, you know, the picture of the guy on the side of the road, you know, he's got no shirt on. He's carrying his cowboy boots, you know, barefoot and just staggering on the side of the road, right? Well, that was my child. And I pulled up on him and I have a little convertible that I drive. And when I pulled up beside him, he said something, I don't remember what, but you know, I was like, come on, let's go. And, and I put the top down on the car and I turned on a song that we both loved. And I said, let's go. And we drove home and we sang the song and we, didn't have to be ugly and nobody had to say anything ugly to each other. And he went in and went to bed and I knew that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to love them and hate the disease. Mm. And that was the one time that I think I actually practiced it just right. Mm. There were other times I did it with anger. You know, I could, I could take the action, but it was with anger. And uh, that time was what I remember, you know, I think in each life of the people that I have a relationship with, and I've, I've lost a lot, I haven't lost a husband, thank you, God, but, but I have lost a lot of people. And in each one of those, I can look at one moment, God's given me one moment that I can look back and say, yep, we did that right. Not all moments, trust me, but there's at least one with everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that too. It was hard for me to separate Isaac and the, and the disease. And I thought because of everything I knew, you know, that it would, and I also did not recognize it, um, at all the first and second time. And I was like, I should have definitely recognized it the second time because I had seen it the first time. Mm -hmm. And whenever he died, I didn't even know that he had been using, you know, and it's just like, I mean, I don't like you think you, I, I thought I would know, you know, and it's just, I don't know. I have so much more, I think, um, respect for family members. Um, now that I've experienced it yes. on the other side, you know? Yes. So from what I have heard and correct me if I'm wrong, your big book, Al-Anon, correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, so did you work the steps in Al-Anon before you went to AA? When I came in, it was 1987. Mm -hmm. And at that time, yes, we read the big book. There was not, uh, the only thing that I had that I was aware of, I'm going to preface that, that I was aware of to work steps was the blueprint for progress. And if there's ever a piece of Al-Anon literature I despise, that's it. Because it gives you the opportunity to say yes and no. It doesn't say, how are you controlling? Please describe. 
it says something, you know, were you controlling? Yes or no? Well, that's kind of a cheating when it comes to an inventory, you know? And so I can't say that we ever actually sat down and worked the steps the way that we do in the big book, the way that I do with the ladies I sponsor. You know, now we have so much more literature that I can lead women through the steps, whether it's in Al-Anon or AA, and we have literature that tells us exactly how it's done. It's very clear. But then, no, no, we did not. Um, you know, a big book was something that you picked up as a reference rather than a textbook. Mm. We had the one day at a time book. That was our that was our literature and the big book. That was it. So do you feel like you had a spiritual awakening at all before you got sober? I think in order to get sober, I had to. Mm. I think I had to have a spiritual awakening before I could see that I was alcoholic. Mm-hmm. You know, and I did some adult children of alcoholic meetings. Those were really difficult, but they were really helpful um, because it helped me identify that I was affected in a different way than maybe someone who married an alcoholic because I grew up in it. Mm-hmm. I had special, a special form of shame, if you wanted to call it that, a different kind of shame and a different kind of broken than someone who chose to marry an alcoholic. I didn't choose it. I was born into it. And suffered as the child. You know, I'm sure our son, both sons, suffered in different ways, even though they never saw us drink. Because we are alcoholic. We're not going to be perfect parents. So that, I'm, I'm sure both of them suffered the same, you know, adult children of alcoholics. Both of them qualify for that. Mm-hmm. But hope that answered the question. Yeah, absolutely. Because I've wondered, um, I had a friend and she is alcoholic and an addict and she worked the steps out of the big book for that. And then she said that she was going to work the Al-Anon steps, but out of the big book. And I'm like, what, how does that, what's, I just didn't understand because it's like, you already did that though. So is it, I mean, what's the difference? Can you explain that? I'd love to be an authority, but I'm not. Anything I know has either been taught to me by someone else or what I have taken as an opinion, my opinion on how to do that. Like I said, the Lake Whitney group, we worked them together as women. And we worked them from a women's perspective. And we did a step study every year together. And we took the big book, the 12 and 12. We took all of the daily readers both in AA and Al-Anon. We took the paths to recovery. We took the how Al-Anon works. We took all of the literature. And if we're talking about powerless, how am I powerless over another person, right? That's the Al-Anon part. That in the big book would be something to the effect of uh, where did we set the ball rolling? You know, in the book, it talks about that. That's part of the Al-Anon part of the disease. That's where you can identify as both alcoholic and Al-Anon depends on the way you look at it. Where did I set the ball rolling and trying to control you, which makes you angry at me, which causes me to be resentful at you and blame you some more? That's the Al-Anon sickness. Where did I set the ball rolling as an alcoholic? What did I do that was so self-centered and so selfish that it harmed you? Different perspective. Same step, same question, same topic, different perspective. And so when 
when I sponsor a double winner, some of us get to be called that. Other people call us specially sick. I don't know, but you know, we've always called us double winners. When I get to sponsor one, and when we did those step studies together, both Al Anon and AA, we wrote and searched in all the literature. You know, um, how is my life unmanageable today? Am I still controlling or trying to control the world around me and the people around me? Okay, that's my Al-Anon perspective. Am I still trying to, to have control and, and be rigid? rigid? Rigidity was one of my worst defects in the very beginning. Today, I'm very fluid. I know life changes and moves way different pace than I expected. But in, as in my alcoholism, how is my life unmanageable as the result of my alcoholism? It is always as the result of my alcoholism. I have done something. You know, and I don't have the ability to manage drinking. If I take another drink, it doesn't matter if I'm 30 minutes or 30 years sober. I cannot manage a drink. Not one. Not a drug, not a drink. Can't do it. So it's just a different perspective, the same 12 steps. And so we read the, you know, we look up, we look up definitions. We look up things. Um, you know, fourth step is a whole different world because an Al-Anon generally Generally, as an Al-Anon, I had terrible self-esteem, terrible self-esteem when I came in. I thought I was, I was worse than anyone else. And as an alcoholic, I thought I was better than everyone else. They were all wrong. Don't you see what I know? And I don't know where that magic line was, where I crossed from being, I don't think I was ever a pure Al-Anon, which means didn't need AA, right? That's a pure Al-Anon to me. I don't think it was ever a pure Al-Anon, but somewhere I crossed the line from I'm worse than everyone to an egomaniac with an inferiority complex, you know? And, and you know, um, Billy, who is a, a member of the Al-Anon program, I think 48 years, maybe even 50 now. She learned, I think from her sponsor, you know, that balance is the point that we miss going from one extreme to the other. It is that middle point. And that's what we have to try and find is balance. I can't be all the worst in the world. I can't be the worst human being in the world. And I'm not the best in the world. I'm just an ant in the anthill like everybody else. Mm -hmm. No better, no worse. And that's kind of recovery depending on Al-Anon or AA. So that's what we tried to do when we work steps as an Al-Anon out of the big book, we're going to change the perspective from one of this illness did this in this way, and this is how it manifested in my life, to I reacted to this illness in this way, and this is how my reactions manifested and showed up. Makes, makes sense, because I was like, so you're just going to do the same thing that you already did? That's, I mean, that was my... It's, just, it's hard. Yeah, I just didn't understand. So thank you for, for clarifying that. Are you or someone you love struggling with the inability to stop drinking? At the Magdalene House, we believe that education about alcoholism and recovery is crucial to helping more alcoholic women and their families recover. Our staff is available to provide speakers to the public who will discuss the disease of alcoholism, how to help someone who may be struggling, and more available resources. 
To request a speaker, please visit our website at magdalenhouse.org education. How long were you in the recovery program when your son started using? I don't know exactly what age he started using. Um, when you found out, how about that? Gosh, when I found out, I was probably 34 years in Illinois now. He's been sober five. So I'm going to say 27, 26 or 27 years in Illinois. And all of that 26 years of Illinois kind of went out the window. Oh, what I heard you say. For a minute. <laughs> For a minute. You know, I tried to practice it throughout his growing up years because, like I said, he was one, you know, I just thought my oldest might have the isms until the youngest came along. And then I saw him very clearly. I tried very hard while he was growing up to practice Al-Anon with him, you know, to try and stay out of his business, to try and let him make decisions, to try and let him grow into a man, to try and, you know, stay out of his, stay out of his life while being part of his life. Um, you know, I didn't, unlike the first child, I did not tell the second one how he was going to dress. You know, that's a silly thing, but it was war in our house. Yeah, It was war in our house with our oldest. And so there were things I tried to do different, you know, because of my ignorance, though, of his using, lots of times I would stick up for him. I wasn't an enabler. But if I thought someone was truly doing him wrong, I would stand up and fight you to the death to take care of that child. I adore him, always have, both children. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there were times that I might might have re-examined, but I didn't know he was using. You know, turns out later, now he can tell me, nope, mom, I was wrong every time. You know, it's just... <laughs> Even when you intended me, I was wrong. Oh, okay. You know, oh, but, um, but yeah, I just, I tried to practice it, but it got very real when it got very, very hard, very hard. When I figured out and started, it got to a point that he couldn't hide it anymore. And there were, uh, there's a kind of surrender that we do with a spouse. You know, I can't. I can't make my 63-year-old husband call a doctor and make an appointment, right? I don't have that power, and I'm not doing it for him. He's a big boy. There's a kind of surrender we do in something like that versus the kind of surrender you do on your face, soaked with tears, and begging God to take care of your baby. Mm -hmm. That's a whole new level of surrender. You know, the night that I remember immediately before he ended up in jail um, and, and after jail, immediately from jail, he went straight to treatment. Thank you, Ben Patterson and Josh Slay. I always will say those names. One is dead now and the other is still alive and working with people. So I'm grateful. But um, right before he ended up in jail, the last night he came home and was, um, he was wasted to a point he couldn't hold his head up. And uh, I'm not going to give all the details of that. It's not my story to tell. But I can tell you that once we got him in bed, I sat by the bed all night long. And I watched his chest go up and down to make sure he was breathing. And I don't know if there's ever a greater surrender than that one. 
And I don't know that I'll ever be able to fully surrender. But I know that night was as, was as close as I'll ever come. I had called my sponsor. And my sponsor happens to have an extraordinary amount of medical knowledge. And she said, they're not going to do anything at the emergency room. You don't know what he's taking. And he's so messed up. There's nothing left in his stomach to bump. And so we had to wait it out. And waiting and watching and knowing an ambulance was no less than 30 or 45 minutes away. I don't know CPR. We didn't have Narcan. We didn't know what he'd taken. Looking back, you know, we both happen to keep Narcan now because we know so many addicts. Um, looking back, you know, we, things could have been different, but we didn't know them. But I won't ever forget that, you know, and, and, and that is the only thing that will push that fear of losing a child away is surrender. And it's a daily thing. You know, our oldest son rides a motorcycle. I surrender him every day because I, you know, I'm sure they're very, very safe. He's an outstanding driver. It's not him I worry about. Right. You know, with our youngest, his addiction, not only his addiction, you know, he drives a lot. And that sounds silly, but I'm the mama. You know, it, it's just the things that we worry about. Um, I surrender every day, every day. Uh, in fact, we pray for our sons every day because, you know, they're God's children first. Mm. I have done what I was supposed to do, which is teach them to leave me. As a mom, I've always learned, I've learned in Al-Anon from very wise women. My job as a mother is to teach him to leave me successfully. And both of them, we've done that to the best of our ability. They're both happy young men and they're both good, good humans. Mm -hmm. And I'm so proud of them. But it, with the youngest, that was a um, that was a level of surrender I have not not had to do since. Um, even watching him in treatment, and even with him coming out of treatment, you know how scary that is. I haven't had to surrender like that since. And I hope I never have to. But uh, you know, that's just that's the key. Is if I want to get out of fear, I have to surrender because God can and I can't. Whatever it is, God can handle it. And, you know, I, was, I will tell you this, too. Some moms and people will tell you that God will never give you more than you can handle. I absolutely don't believe that. He's given me lots more than I can handle. He has. And what he's never done is give me more than me and my AA and Al-Anon group can handle. Mm, I love that. Because I can always take what is breaking me to my group and my people, and my sponsor, and they will put it back together. Mm -hmm. They will put it back together, and they will walk beside me. You know, my sponsor stood beside me as we closed my mama's coffin. Mm -hmm. As we closed the lid to it, she stood beside me, and I will never forget that. And I've done those things with other women, and I'm very grateful for that. Mm -hmm. But with our children, it is different. You're right. Mm -hmm. So... That story is just so, so powerful. What would you say to, because my hope is like, we have some, we have different hope for the family interviews already, but we don't have one. Like I said, we don't have one for a parent 
And, um, and so I hope that this finds a parent who needs to hear it. Um, what would you say to a mom or a dad who is going through a child with active addiction? Go to Al-Anon is the first thing I would say. Absolutely. And don't go to an Al-Anon meeting that is only Al-Anon. And when I say that, I changed groups recently, home groups. And the reason I did it is because I was going to one that was only alcoholics. And then I was going to an Al-Anon meeting that was only Al-Anons. There were no double winners in either one. Neither knew much about the other. So the pure alcoholics in that room did not know about Al-Anon and the pure Al-Anons did not know about alcoholics. And I changed groups to a group that has more of the family recovery. There are women who cross from one room to the other. And that's huge. There are men that cross from one room to the other. And that's huge. So that would be my first thing is go to Al-Anon. The other is if you are certain, certain they're using or drinking, don't enable them, you know, fix their car. Don't give them money to fix their car, Mm -hmm. right? If they need a place to stay, you must set boundaries. You can stay here, but only as long as you're clean and sober. And you have to be willing to enforce those, those consequences. You don't ever threaten without being willing to enforce the threat. You know, that's the surest way for the sickness to use you over and over. And for an Al-Anon to get resentful and hateful Mm -hmm. is to set boundaries, let you cross them time and time and time again, and then get angry. And as a parent, I've, I've, I've not been the one to do that a whole lot. You know, I'll set a boundary, I'll enforce it. I'm, I'm the harder one of the two of us, but um, I've had to be. So, you know, setting boundaries is big. Um, when we had to leave him in jail, we told him, you can't come back to our house. We do not want the disease in our house. Our house is recovery. It's not the disease. You know, don't buy them cars. Maybe put gas in a car, but don't buy them cars. Under no circumstance, give cash. Ever. You know, so many parents feel like you're my responsibility, son or daughter. And the truth is, to a point, they're your responsibility. But when they grow up and know the difference between right and wrong, and can work at the local grocery store at 16 if they need to for spending money, right? When they can do things that a regular non-addict person might do, and they choose not to do that, don't help that behavior. You know, those are, that's just basic suggestions. You know, the, the real things you have need to do are detach. Know that when they come in with attitude, it's not about you. I did want to ask you about that because I know like whenever my parents like cut me off and like wouldn't let me stay there and I mean all that kind of stuff and um, I hated them right and like I was mean and hateful and I mean I can't imagine my daughter 
speaking to me that way or my son. Was there a time whenever because of the boundaries you were enforcing that your son appeared to have maybe like hated you or was hateful to you or mean to you? In which case, how do you handle that? Uh, I would get phone calls and they were not calls with a request. They were demands, right? You need to do this for me. And that's, you know, the first way for me to say no to anyone <laughs> is a demand. But he would call with demands. And when I would say no, he would start cussing. And then it would elevate to yelling, at which point I would say, we're not having this conversation. And I would hang up the phone. And then the texts would begin. Texting was horrible. I can't delete all of that without deleting the sweet ones I've gotten in the last five years of his recovery. But if I read you some of those, you'd cry because I can't, I can't ever go back and look at them because that's not who I see today. You know, when the texts come in, you go through them and just ignore them because it's not about me. That was that, that was the disease screaming at me. It was screaming at me. You know, you're not helping me. No. No, I'm not. I'm not going to help you kill yourself. At one point, we had that discussion loud, loud in our house because my husband would continue to enable him. We've never said the word divorce in our house, but we did one time. And that one time was after I found out about the lying and found out about the using. I said, I will leave. I don't think I ever said divorce. I said, I will leave. Both of you, the oldest had moved out, but I will leave both of you, husband and young son, before I will watch you enable him to death. I will not watch him die in front of me. And I meant it. I meant it. And so the ugliness came in because his disease was raging back. You know, I don't know about you, but when I'm wrong, and I get defensive, I'm sick, and I get defensive, I get really mean. And that's what happened. You know, his disease was raging at me. At the time, lots of times it felt like he was. I would call my sponsor in tears, you know, lots and lots and lots of times. It's hard not to take it personally. Yeah. But I had to remember that was a disease screaming at me. And that made it a little more, um, I, I survived it, let's say that. <laughs> Wow. I just, I mean, you've probably heard this all the time and comfortable when people say this to me, but you're so strong. Like I just, I mean, that's the way that I would hope I would handle a situation or react, you know, but there's times where I thought I would have handled the situation with Isaac differently, you know, but I just, I just can't imagine like as a mom, having to go through that and like really stand your ground and know that you're doing the right thing for your child, even if they hate you in the process, you know? He did. Yeah. He did. He'll tell you that. Mm -hmm. I think he'd tell you that, that he hated me in that process. And he knew it was him he hated. It just came out at me. And I think part of the strong, you know, that people see is number one, just experience. 
I've just done this over and over and over with different situations. And God used all those years of Al-Anon to finally kick me into gear when it really counted, you know, but those are just years of experience is all that is. I've just done more stuff longer. That's all. When it came to him, that strong, I was the one who could tolerate it. I think he knew if he had been that way with his dad, it would have crushed him. Mm. But I think he knew that I wasn't going to leave no matter what. Right. And that's something I always wanted the, my sons to know. I still call them the boys. <laughs> They're 31 and 25, but I still call them the boys. I wanted the boys to always know mom won't leave. I'm not going to not. I, I think I told him I'm not going to love you. I'm not going to not love you anymore. I will always love you no matter what. I don't know if I ever said I'm not going to leave. But I think that I always told him I'm not going to ever quit loving you. And I never will. I can't do anything to make that happen. Right. Absolutely. For sure. Um, I can't believe it's almost been an hour already. Goodness gracious. No. <laughs> um, because what I'm like, what I'm thinking is if there's somebody listening, who's like their son or daughter is in active addiction right now. And it's like, you know, your son's sober now. Thank God. That's such a miracle. Um, but was there ever a time where you didn't think that that would happen? And if there was, can you speak to the parent that might be thinking that same thing? Sure. I'm really lucky that I was taught long ago to try and stay in today. There were lots of todays that I thought he'd never get sober. That was probably the best thing I could have ever done. Because when you look forward and your future is hopeless, you get pretty hopeless mm-hmm. as a parent, as a human being, as an alcoholic, whatever you are, you get hopeless. And I could not look forward very far because it was too scary. I didn't know if he'd be in that forward. I didn't know if he'd be in that future. And I couldn't do that. And, and staying present and staying in today was probably the best thing that I could have done. And I did that a lot. I consciously had to come back to today. Early, early in my sobriety, my sponsor said, what are your hands doing? I want you to pay attention to your hands and what they're doing. And that will keep you present. Some people say where your feet are. Same thing. You know, but for me, it was my hands. That's how she had me do it. So whatever, pay attention to your hands, that will keep you present. And it does. It always has. And so I used a lot of those little tools and tricks I learned in the program to try and keep me present. Because if I looked forward, I would be so hopeless at the thought of losing my child to this addiction. And so for those parents that are scared, you know, you're scared out of your mind. You don't know the right thing to do. You don't know the wrong thing you do. You just absolutely don't know what to do. And that's the time that you surrender and say, God, I can't, I can't carry this child. He is your child first. And what I can do is try to get me better so that I will respond in the way you want me to respond, God. I love that. Love him and stay out of God's way. Let God, you know, my, my sponsor's mother, who I adore, and we've gone to meetings together forever. Her sponsor taught her, I have such a good lineage, I'm grateful. Uh, her sponsor taught her that she is to move out of their sunlight because I'm casting a shadow and God can't get in. 
And I've got to get out of the way so that God can take care of that child. Mm-hmm. He's only loaned to me. Both of them are on loan. God can take them back at any point. And I have to remember that. And we don't end any conversation without I love you. You know, no, we did back then. There were lots of hangups and lots of ugly. And, you know, I had to just absolutely trust and surrender and say, God, I really don't know what to do because I had no idea. I knew what to do to take care of me. And that was the best I could do is go to meetings, talk to my sponsor, do what's suggested. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love that. Um, getting better so I can respond the way that God would have me respond. I think that's so important. Well, how is your relationship with him today? Oh. How long do I have? Okay. Um, (laughs) You know, he made amends, of course, while he was in treatment. He has also made amends since then for things I think he forgot. Mm -hmm. I, of course, had to do the same, you know, for the times that that I stole and took things from him or was ugly to him, my part. Today, you know, it's uh, it's hard to talk about this today because I get stupid. (laughs) He's the, he's the son I always wanted him to be. He's absolutely everything and lots more than I ever could have expected. He calls either his dad or I every day. It's kind of an every other day thing. He does for others. He is a man that I'm so proud to call my son. I'm so proud that I'm his mom. And I don't mind that people say, you're so-and-so's mom, you know. I, I didn't get his permission specifically to mention his name in the podcast. So that's why I'm trying to be, keep his anonymity. But uh, he, I'm so proud of him. I, and I had nothing to do with who he is. He and God did all that. But I'm proud to be his mom. You know, he calls and checks on us. He loves on us. He's, he's giving and kind. He's a great dog dad. I have grand dogs. You know, he's a great dog dad. And, and a huge member of his group and in recovery. He does so much service mm-hmm. in all things, not just, not just recovery. In all things, he has the servant's heart. And I'm so blessed to just watch. I just, when he and, he and his brother are home, I just sit and watch, watch those boys talk and watch them build that relationship that they're going to need when his dad and I are gone. You know, when we're gone, they're going to need that. And it's a blessing to watch them build it. But yeah, today he's a gift every day, even before he was a gift. It was just a different form. Totally different human being. (laughs) Well, you know, you were talking about him having a servant's heart and everything. Whenever uh, Isaac died, I was put in this situation where like I had to move and I mean, my car was stolen. I mean, everything that could possibly go wrong after it (laughs) went wrong. And, um, and I had to move quickly and he offered to come and, and help with his truck and move me and my kids. Oh. So, you know, awesome. I didn't know that. Yeah. So something also to be proud of, you know, cause I was a, a single mom and I didn't know what I was going to do, you know? And so it's always good to know that there's people in your corner always. You know? and, uh, yeah. whenever Isaac, on Isaac's funeral, um, the day of his funeral, he called to extend his condolences or the wake, or I can't remember, um, and apologize that he couldn't be there, but he was taking somebody to treatment. So just 
really speaks to his heart. Yeah. I wish I could claim some uh, participation in that. I can just <laughs> tell you, I get to watch and it's just awesome. It's it just awesome. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, to wrap things up, I guess what I will just ask is if you um, could leave the listeners with one takeaway, like if they were only going to hear this one thing of the podcast for the parent who's struggling, what would you want them to hear? Surrender. That's, that's the key to having the fear that grips your heart break. And if you don't have a God you trust or a higher power you trust to surrender to, then find one. Mm. Find one you trust to surrender to because surrender is the only thing we can do. There is no action we can take to make them different. I think that's the truth. Goodness. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank um, you. And so powerful. It was so nice to meet you too and you. talk to you. And it's so deep on our first time ever meeting each other, you know? Yes. Um, um, yes. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. Well, you too. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Right, bye. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at MagdalenHouse.org.